0: But they were also really excited about his work because he drew people in. When you read his story, it was if you were there because he was, you know, kind of impassioned.
1: Lucy Rose Fisher is an author, artist, and social scientist. Her book, The Journalist, Life and Loss in America's Secret War, tells the story of her brother, Jerry Rose, a young journalist in Vietnam who helped to expose the covert beginnings of America's involvement in the Vietnam War in the early 1960s. This is the Sperber Prize Podcast, where I'll talk to winners and nominees of the annual award given by Fordham University in honor of author Anne M. Sperber and her remarkable biography of Edward R. Murrow. The award seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the curious backgrounds to some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. I'm your host, Kevin Deney. Welcome to the Sperber Prize Podcast. Joining me today is Lucy Rose Fisher, author of The Journalist and Sister of Jerry Rose, who the journalist has written about his life. Um, Lucy, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. How about
1: you? (laughs) I'm great. Doing really well. Let's get right into it sort of off the top. Can you tell us a little bit about what The Journalist is about and um, your process, I guess?
0: Jerry Rose was a journalist in Vietnam in the early 1960s. He witnessed the beginnings of America's entanglement in Vietnam well before Americans knew what was going on. And at the time, most Americans would not have been able to tell you where Vietnam was. And, you know, it was sometime later that that it became something that we were so aware of on our television sets. And and of course, so many American soldiers died there and fought there. But when he first came, he actually went there first to teach at the University of Hue and then sort of slipped into a role as journalist because he became fascinated with what was happening there. So this book is about his years in Vietnam and, and his experience as a
1: journalist. It's a super interesting account, I think, because you pieced it together through journal entries and letters. Can you talk about the actual process a little bit, how you put it together?
0: Yes, it it actually, I mean, it's almost embarrassing how long I spent on this. I, I had the idea for this some 30 years ago. I mean, a really long time ago, I worked on it and put it aside and then picked it up again. But he went there originally, he had gotten a master's in creative writing from uh, the University of Iowa, that was a famous writing workshop. He was really intending to collect material when he went there to, to, as a teacher, as a as a professor. He he really thought he it would be a chance to collect material for his fiction, and he was writing stories. He was working on a novel, and he just got drawn into the political scene and became a a journalist, almost on a lark. But he kept journals because he was a writer so especially his first two years and and the last he at the end of his of his life there he took a position as a um, advisor to the prime minister of Vietnam and he kept journals then too because again he thought this would be a book that he would write either fiction or non-fiction and so I had a wealth of material that his widow uh, my sister-in-law had saved so I used that material and I also I interviewed many of his colleagues and friends most of whom are not around anymore so it was lucky that I started this a long time ago because I got to talk to to many people that I would not have been
1: able to uh, later You yourself are not a journalist you come from more of a research background
0: Yes I'm I'm a sociologist by training and and then became an artist and a writer of creative nonfiction. So I I saw this as a job of merging together a kind of creative project I, rather than an academic. My my first three books were academic kind of books. And when I first started working on this, I treated it as, as a more of an academic book. Since then, I've published a couple picture books for adults and sort of creative nonfiction. And, and so I used other skills that I had and made it I think it reads more like a novel so that you know I kind of had to to change who I was in order to to take the material and bring it in a in a different kind of format.
1: Interesting so that sort of style didn't come as naturally to you at first?
0: No I, well it wasn't part of my training so I, I had to learn it was like getting a p another PhD all over again. For me um You know, I actually felt like I was writing a hundred books in order to get one book out. I wrote so many different versions of it.
1: (laughs) So Jerry also was not a journalist by trade at first.
0: He was not. He was not.
1: He was more of an artist and a creative writer from what I understand.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And then when he sort of ended up in journalism, were you able to see his artistic style and his creative side come through the journalism? Because I know they're not totally together.
0: Yes, I think so. And one problem he had was he tended to write too much. so the editors were kind of cutting back <laughs> on on what he'd write because he wanted to know what people were feeling, you know and he wanted to know the details and and so he was writing, I think as a as a creative writer. but I think it also comes through because his writing was really exciting. He wrote, the first major article about Americans fighting in Vietnam. This was published in ni- in March 1963 in the Saturday Evening Post. It was a cover story with his photographs, also. And his editor then and later, you know, kept saying have to cut, <laughs> but they were also really excited about his work because he drew people in. When you read his story, it was as if you were there because he was, you know, a kind of impassioned writer.
1: Yeah, well, he really brings such a like detail and vividness to the stories that seems like it was a different tone in journalism before then. And he's also on the front lines walking through battle scenes. Did you ever imagine that your brother, this artistic, creative person, would be there?
0: I I don't know. I mean, one of the things that happened to him when he went to Vienna. First of all, he he had, he had very many Vietnamese friends. He had a Vietnamese blood brother, as you know, from reading the book and was part of this family. And the way he wrote seemed natural to who he was because he was so interested in people. I think that was one of the characteristics that he could just meet people and get to know them really quickly. And they would feel like they really knew him. And so that was a quality that was useful as a journalist, you know, not just as a writer or an artist, but as a journalist. And and I did visit him in, in Hong Kong and Vietnam. So I did see some of what, you know, some of him as, as his role there. But
1: does anything stick out from your time there when you visited him?
0: Oh, a lot. <laughs> he had a painting, you know, he never really gave up the painting and, but he didn't have time for it. He, in some ways, his photography was his way of expressing his visual art. But also there was a very large painting sitting in his study on, you just imagine this study in Hong Kong with tile floors and it was a city scene and he would paint it and then he would sort of redo it. So sometimes it would be a night scene and sometimes it would be a day scene and it was the same painting. But he just would, it, it was like if he he was sort of not sleeping at night and, and, he, and he was trying to get his head together, he would be working on this oil painting and just redoing it. So um, it reminds me a little bit of how I did his book, where I <laughs> redid it and did it over and over again. You know, he he was very comfortable with the setting and he, he was very knowledgeable. As you said, he not only followed troops, which he did, But he also, he did this incredibly dangerous thing, which was he did interviews around the countryside. This was when it just first started. And he wanted to know the people. He didn't want to just get, you know, secondhand reports. So he interviewed over 300 uh, villagers all over Vietnam at a time. Americans didn't really know this, but there was terrorists of the Viet Cong were trying to take over the country. The North had not given up on unifying North and South Vietnam. And and he wanted to know how people felt. And so at a dangerous time he sort of went and did these interviews with an interpreter. He spoke French and Vietnam had been a French colony so he could use his French, but he did not speak Vietnamese. I knew he knew a little bit, but basically he had an interpreter uh, for speaking with, with non-French speaking Vietnamese, but it was a dangerous trip. and But it gave him all sorts of insights about what was happening. And he was very frustrated with what the Americans were doing and, and tried to write about it, but and did write about it.
1: I thought it was interesting. He was in Vietnam for years, sort of covering what was going on before it was widely reported to the American public. When you were at home during that time, you were seeing his work. What was the perception of it in America?
0: Well, you know, it changed over time. First, we didn't know, and then, um, you know, then towards towards 1965, we started getting a sense that Americans were getting involved in Vietnam. But it was very early, and there were just the beginnings of the protests. It was difficult. We were worried about him because he was writing about battle scenes, and he was there, <laughs> and so. Um, ultimately, he was killed in a plane crash there. And we don't know why. Uh, at the time, there were two explanations, one that he might have been shot down, you know, it was a war going on. Or it might have been the condition of a plane. And when I wrote the book, I sort of assumed it was the condition of the plane, but I didn't know. But since then, I've talked with people who have had relatives and friends and other people, they knew who, there were other incidents of plane crashes. And there was some theory, some rumor that it might have been sabotage. And and we don't know that. We don't know that. I didn't put that in the book because I didn't know. But he was investigating corruption in the provinces. And, you know, (laughs) it might have been that. That
1: Sabotage. from the Vietnamese government
0: from, at the time? From the provincial government, particularly.
1: Mm-hmm, which I understand he was working with them and then had stepped down.
0: Yeah, well, what happened was he was invited to be part of the government. There had, there had been um, this brutal leader, Ngo Dinh Diem, uh, who was a Catholic leader in a very Buddhist country and there was all. Uh, and and he had watched his friends get arrested during this time when he was a professor. He, you know, he said from his own experience in a, in the United States, politics was sort of a background thing. Not that it wasn't important, but it was you assumed that there'd be safety. You assumed that that there would be a, a justice. But when he came to Vietnam, he saw that the political situation could be a matter of life and death. And there wasn't a democracy of any sort there, and there still wasn't, and and still isn't. But, um, so he became fascinated by it and and began reading a lot about it and studying it, and also just talking to people. He knew a lot of journalists. And so when one of his journalist friends was gonna leave and asked him if he wanted to take that job, he thought, okay, you know, I'll try it. And, and I think he, he was very successful you know, from the start because he was a good writer and also because he started knowing a lot about Vietnam and, and he was fascinated by it. I mean, it just, there was so much to learn and so much to understand and that process really intrigued him.
1: So it seemed like he spent a lot of time traveling around Asia. You mentioned that he moved to Hong Kong after he lived in Vietnam. But he still spent most of his time on the road, it seemed like.
0: Yes, he did a lot. It was he moved to Hong Kong to take a position with Time Life. Uh, and he wasn't very happy with them, in part because they had him working in an office and he just this was not a good fit for him. It just he he wanted to know what was going on on the ground. And he just got married and then they had a baby and it was a lot safer in Hong Kong than it was by then in, in Vietnam. but. Um he actually, just around the time his first child was being born, he quit the staff position in Hong Kong to take a go back to be a stringer, you know, a freelancer, so that he could do what he really wanted to do, what he really loved, which was risky. Everything was risky, for <laughs> physically risky and also financially risky, but he did it anyway.
1: Yeah, it seems like he was really not driven by risk, but driven by seeing what's next, what else can I learn? is admirable, I think.
0: Well, you know, I'm not sure what kind of journalism you want to do, but war journalism is, you know, every time I hear about another journalist uh, being killed, you know, it just, it just goes straight to my heart because this was something, if we want to know about what's happening in the world, we need journalists out there as our eyes and ears and, and the whole field is at risk now. So.
1: Especially irrelevant. Or relevant with what's going on now in Russia.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: One thing I felt like I noticed a few times throughout the book, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but you mentioned like a ghostly presence or the parallel of a ghost writer. And then you ghost wrote this book for Jerry through his voice. Um, is there any like significance there to this image of the ghost?
0: I think so. I, you know, and I, I'm not a really religious person, but. I felt when I was writing this that he was sitting on my shoulder writing it with me. In fact, I wrote a short play about that called The Ghost Writer because it felt like a collaboration. And, and in an, you know, I think I said this also, in a very strange way, you know, I, w- I was so much younger and he was my mentor. He would critique my letters. He would critique poetry I sent him. And so he really he was my model to be a writer. And he encouraged me to be a writer. In fact, in his last letter to me, he said he was working on on translations of Vietnamese poetry into English, and he wanted me to help. That that never happened. But it felt like, you know, so many years later, he had trained me to do this. (laughs) He had trained me to write this book. (laughs) So, So we not only collaborated, but you know, his his presence was so part of this book. And I decided to list him as first author because a lot of the writing was his. It was interwoven; It was really a collaboration so that some of the writing was his. I wrote it in the first person present tense, and that wasn't his writing. Nothing was in the present tense, but, but it was a style that I'd used in other writing. And it felt right. It felt like this would draw the story along. So, the ghost image was, was very powerful to me. Yeah.
1: I think writing it in the perspective that you did makes it really more powerful than if it were written from your perspective the whole time, maybe, or just an outsider's perspective. Um, really seeing it through his eyes is interesting, especially because it goes so into detail into his personal life outside of his work. It goes through his love life, his personal connections, and then like his emotions when he's seeing these things going on. Were these just things that you found in his journals and in letters?
0: A lot of it was things that that he had just, but I I might have to expand because, you know, there might be a few words and I would sort of make dialogue out of that. (laughs) So... Like there's an early first scene when he's in a PhD program at the University of Washington in Seattle, and his professor gets a telephone call and it's from the Asia Foundation wanting they want somebody to teach at the University of Hui. Well, there was a letter that referred to that. He's writing to that professor, and well, it wasn't the dialogue, but I had to make it into I sort of imagined what that would have been. It had, you know, there had to have been some talking about it. So I had to, and you know, if he had written it himself, he would have had more memories, but he also would have had to reconstruct
1: what actually happened. Was there anything as you were piecing it together that you learned about him? I'm sure you learned a lot. (laughs) A lot. Yeah, Anything in particular that stands out?
0: You know, it's hard to say now because so much of what I know about him is from what I read one is that he had an affair with a with a married woman a woman who had a very unhappy marriage uh, her husband was having all sorts of affairs and and she was pretty unhappy and they just kind of um they kind of latched onto each other and he wrote about it in his journal and since then i've gotten an opportunity to meet this woman to somehow found her <laughs> and uh, she said that he was the love of her life even though it was something that couldn't be it you know wasn't something that was going to be long term but um
1: what was it like for you being a character in the book throughout the book it seems like you had a pretty important impact on his life
0: I think maybe I did he was 11 when I was born so he was always a big brother. He left home when I was seven years old and went to college. And so it wasn't like we were living in the same household all those years. He was always this very special visitor. Um, it was an interesting process. I had to describe what I looked like. And so at one point, I described myself as plain looking in my brother's voice. And he'd written that. I wrote that <laughs> about it. <laughs> It was an interesting process of being, of trying to look at myself from, from his perspective. And I've also thought about, you know, what would you think about this book you know, that, that he wrote with me? And I sort of imagined that if somehow there's an afterlife and and I meet him, he would just say to me, what took you so long? <laughs> just, you know, why did it take me so, so many years? Because really the book was published 50 years after he had died. So almost. (laughs) So
1: I feel like the length of time, there were a few factors that went in, obviously, right? Because There were so many people who the book goes into intricate details about their lives. What's the process like with the rest of the family involved? Were they all supportive of your book?
0: That's a really good question. Um, One reason why I, I put the, Book aside for almost a quarter century, and a large part of it was because of my sister in- law my brother's widow. she had helped me get all the material together and um and she was supportive at first, but then she was a very private person, and she was very concerned about some of the stuff that was in the book initially very uncomfortable with it so and, I, and also I had to get back to my paid job. <laughs> so I was a researcher and, I, I, and so I kind of put it aside. I didn't know how long it would be putting it aside and I didn't pick it up again until after my sister-in-law had died. So that was, that was one factor. There was also something that came up in the book. Um, when I was doing the research for it initially, I discovered this odd thing uh, there was a, a well-known journalist, um, Stanley Carnot, who had been his boss. When Jerry did his interviews with Vietnamese villagers all over the country, he had sent all this material to Carnot, who had co- I guess who, who collaborated with him on writing the first article from it because he critiqued him. and saying that it was too creative what he wrote. You know, it wasn't wasn't journalism, it was too creative. But then Jerry went on and used this material for a lot of other things. But it was Jerry who had done all the research. and It was Jerry who had collated all this material. Well, Stanley Karno later wrote a book on Vietnam that eventually became a TV series about the Vietnam War in the 80s. And I was using this as background material and I discovered passages in this book that Carnot said when he traveled all over Vietnam and did these interviews. And because I was so intimately involved, you know, I sort of memorized this, this it was just in my head. I knew that was exactly from, from my brother's journals. I knew exactly, I knew those stories. And I remember just that moment of sort of like, oh my God, he's basically plagiarized this and taken credit for work that my brother risked his life to, to collect. And he probably figured, you know, who would know? My brother had been dead for quite a while. Who would know? But then I'm writing this book and I did know. And I, I called my sister-in-law and she was very angry. She was just, she collected some material. She put it together. You know, she thought of of confronting him. She never did. And then, you know, oddly, um, Carnot's papers went to the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and Jerry Rose's papers are at the Hoover Institute. <laughs> and, and, and including a whole set of material that my sister-in-law collected about the, the plagiarism. She, so, so, you know, it never, you know, it, it never confronted him in his lifetime, but, but somehow afterwards it's still, there's something to haunt him maybe.
1: You know. They're still connected, still tied together. That's interesting you would bring that up and that their papers are actually still stored together because their careers were so tightly Interwovens. Carno was his boss at first, right? In journalism.
0: Yes, he was his boss. That's so. so that's why Carno had all those materials because he sent the massive materials, copies of all his journals from that trip to him.
1: Later on, when Carno left his position, they kind of were competing for stories, right?
0: They were yeah. They were competing, and of course, Carno was a much more experienced journalist, and, and so it was it was tough. <laughs> it, was,
1: it was tough for Jerry. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Interesting how that was woven together throughout their whole lives. Juan, do you know what happened? Is it pronounced Juan? Oh, Juan, his his blood brother. Go into their relationship just a little bit. I found their relationship so interesting.
0: Yes. Well, they met when they were both professors at the University of Hawaii and they, they felt like they were, you know, similar souls. Juan was a little bit older, but somehow... The way they thought saw things, the way they saw the world. And and they literally saw themselves as blood brothers. Kwan and his family had come from the north. There were many Vietnamese who were anti-communist, who had <clears throat> migrated from North Vietnam, the communist North Vietnam, to the south. His He had a brother and sister in Saigon. And Jerry became part of this family. This was his adopted family. So... And it wasn't just a casual thing; it was a very intimate thing that this was he was part of that family. When when I visited him in Vietnam, I stayed with uh, Juan's brother, uh, Bui Tong He, and his his wife was French, uh, Simone. And then it turned out that he and Simone uh, came to the United States and lived in Minnesota, (laughs) in the you know one of the suburbs. And so so my husband and i we became very close friends with them because and that's how i found out what happened to juan when juan had um was married and first he had a daughter then he had a son and you know he felt like he and jerry were sort of on parallel courses in 1975 when the communists took over his wife and his children went to america but He decided to stay. He thought that he could help with the transition. Well, the communists didn't think so, and they threw him in a concentration camp, basically. And and he spent a number of years there um, under very brutal conditions. And then when he was finally released, he he wasn't allowed to earn a living. His family tried to support him. They tried to bring him uh, over to the States to be with his wife and children. But, um, but it didn't, and then he died. He died of kind of the ravishes of, of the of the conditions that he'd been living in. so
1: uh, and, uh, and then we said, well, I was reading that part of the book. yeah, yes, me too. Do you think Jerry's connection to Juan and that sort of adopted family you mentioned was part of the reason he was just so tied to that part of the world?
0: I think so. I think so he had other. Close friends, Vietnamese friends, but but I think so. I mean, I think I think he felt like he saw Vietnam as both an insider and an outsider. but he had, he just was so um, so close to to some of the people there that that it wasn't just like an an outsider's perspective. And he cared deeply about what Vietnam, and he was incredibly worried
1: about what would happen. Probably why his work is so special because he had such a individual perspective compared to everybody else there at the time.
0: I mean, I think there there are other journalists who who marry Vietnamese, you know, who become tied also.
1: But I agree. But I think this is just my interpretation. But his artistic background and not seeing it through the lens of a journalist made it. It's interesting. Just a little bit yeah. different than uh, like because all the other Americans there at the time were soldiers or pretty much journalists by trade but
0: that's true yeah
1: but is there anything else that you want to add anything in particular about the book that's really important to you
0: you know younger people often don't know much about what happened in vietnam so but one of his friends was daniel ellsberg who became famous infamous because of the pentagon papers and ellsberg is one of the few people who's of his friends who's still alive and considered him a really close friend, although he met him only briefly. He met him uh, shortly before Jerry died. He, in, I think it was like from August to September that they had a, a relationship. But Ellsberg felt that Jerry was his mentor there. And, you know, and maybe I've thought about this since from what, what Dan told me that maybe he the first glimpse of the problems of what was happening in Vietnam came from his relationship with my brother who, you know, and the sort of honesty about what was going on, you know, came from his talks, long talks with with my brother and, um, you know, and an understanding of that and the American secrets you know, had to be told, which was what he did with the Pentagon paper. So I I kind of wonder uh, uh, about that
1: as well. Yeah, sort of the lasting influence. Tune into the Sperber Prize podcast next time for my conversation with Marvin Cobb about his book, Assignment Russia, becoming a foreign correspondent in the crucible of the Cold War. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Lucy Rose Fisher, to Fordham University and the Sperber Prize committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at SperberPrize.com. And thanks for listening. I will talk to you soon.